go ahead and open up to Acts chapter Acts chapter 10 this morning. Last week I had mentioned we're going to be sort of um, revolving around the idea of paradigms and paradigm shifts. I don't know if you remember that from last week. A paradigm is a lens through which we view something. For instance, um, evolution would be a paradigm. It's the way that we look, or I shouldn't say we, but it's the way that people look at the creation. They see it through the lens of evolution. That's the paradigm. Another paradigm would be creationism. It's the lens through which you look at and see things. And it's primarily a scientific term, but the paradigm now is used for all kinds of things, social things, religious things, and and all that. So today we're going to look at a paradigm shift. One of my favorite examples of of this comes from medicine. Um, Prior to the 1980s, doctors were pretty much convinced that stomach ulcers were caused by stress and spicy foods. In fact, I kind of remember that growing up. I knew some folks that had ulcers, and they were told, don't eat spicy foods, and, you know, um, caused by stress, things you may be too much acid, and so they put you on antacids and everything else. However, in the, in the early 1980s, two Australian doctors by the name of Barry Marshall and Robin Warren made a discovery that kind of rocked the medical world, but not quite immediately. One of them had discovered that um, people with ulcers had something called H. pylori, in their stomachs. And he began to think that maybe H. pylori, a bacteria, doesn't belong in the stomach, it actually belongs in your large intestines, um, that maybe H. pylori was the cause, and so that he began to do some research, and he became convinced that H. pylori was the cause of most stomach ulcers. And he also found that by treating those with stomach ulcers with antibiotics, that it would resolve the problem. Now, at first, the medical community's reaction was crickets. Just silence. Nobody was interested in hearing it. He couldn't get his research published in any medical journals because they refused to accept it, or when they did accept it, they would refuse to publish it. So he would finally get a medical journal to accept his research, and then he would wait, and wait, and wait, and he would ask, and they would make excuses for why it wasn't published. When he did get an opportunity, or when these two doctors got their opportunity to present their work, they were met with constant criticism. Their work was disputed and rejected, but not on the basis of science, but ultimately because it just couldn't possibly be true. Because everybody knew that ulcers were caused by stress and spicy foods and maybe too much acid. In fact, according to Dr. Marshall, the one who discovered H. pylori, He said this, To gastroenterologists, the concept of germs causing ulcers was like saying that the earth is flat. Another major factor in rejecting his work was the lack of funding and support from drug companies. At the time, drug companies were making billions off of antacids. And some of them told him specifically, We're not interested. Why would we want to fund research into something that could take away our profits and our proceeds? And oftentimes, that's where the money comes from. You've got primarily, primarily two sources of funding for this kind of stuff. Drug companies and the government. It's got to come from somewhere. Sometimes investors as well, but oftentimes it's the drug companies and, and others. So they certainly weren't interested, interested in doing something that would negatively impact their sales. I'm not sure of the validity of this story. It's somewhat anecdotal, but I heard one time that 
when these two doctors were finally given an opportunity to present their findings and their research at a conference, a medical conference, they weren't able to finish their presentation because the doctors in the audience began to boo and hiss rather loudly and pretty much forced them off the stage. So, Dr. Marshall decided to take a rather bold move and infected himself with H. pylori and then treated himself. In fact, I met with Dr. Larry Lytle. Some of you know Dr. Larry Lytle. met with him last week for, for uh, lunch. And um, we talked about a number of things. And this, he mentioned something about medical science and how it works related to COVID and some other things and the whole vaccines and, and all that. And so I said, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that story about H. pylori. Immediately he went, yeah, he goes, the doctor had to infect himself just to get people's attention, and so he did. And what's interesting about that is the reason anybody learned about it was because an Australian tabloid called The Star caught wind of it and published an article that was titled Guinea Pig Doctor Discovers New Cure for Ulcers and the Cure. And so it took a tabloid to publish a story. Well, some other doctors kind of caught on to that and were interested and Ultimately, it led to the National Institutes of Health here in the United States finally declaring that the cause of 90% of duodenal and gastric ulcers was H. pylori and that the primary treatment should be elimination of the bacteria through treatment with antibiotics. Ten years later. So for ten years... They tried to get people to listen, but because they had this paradigm that said, no, 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 no. The truth is, we know what causes ulcers. And even though there there was scientific evidence, and even though these guys could demonstrate the truth, nobody wanted to listen. They plugged their ears and didn't want to listen. But, gradually... Over that 10-year period, the paradigm shifted to where now, if you went into the doctor and you said, I think I have an ulcer, and he tested, and he said, well, it's caused by H. pylori, and you went, no, 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 come on, it's stress or spicy foods, I'll just knock that off. He would probably laugh at you. Where prior to 1980s, it would have been the other way around. That's a paradigm shift. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as it comes to Jews and Gentiles, but... I actually discovered something in my research here, and I thought it would be interesting. I wonder where the concept of a paradigm shift came from. Somebody has to invent that type of stuff and invent the phrases. And actually, in 1962, an American philosopher and physicist named Thomas Kuhn coined that phrase, paradigm shift. He had written a book. He was a physicist, a scientist, and he had noticed that when there was a particular paradigm, like what causes ulcers, in the medical community, that if that ever changed, there was a process that happened to lead to that change. And he broke it down into four stages. I want to briefly tell you what those four stages are because I used it for my outline today, believe it or not. Now, his work wasn't inspired, but it was interesting as I looked at what he said happens with these stages, how it applied to what happened in our passage today. Because we see those same things basically happen. The first stage, he said, he called it normal science, and that's what I call the accepted paradigm. And that's simply, there's a paradigm, everybody accepts the paradigm, it's active, it's the lens everyone uses, that's the first stage. Is it just the paradigm exists, it's what everybody thinks. Evolution, it took millions and billions of years for all this to happen. Everybody just accepts it, or most people. 
Okay? Doesn't mean you don't have some detractors. You always have some. But the accepted paradigm, that's the first stage. The second stage, he said, was something he called extraordinary research. I want to just say it's the paradigm challenged. That's the second stage. This is when research starts to lead to showing problems or cracks in the paradigm. It's kind of thrown into a state of crisis. More people begin to question it. As a result, and I love this, scientists begin to push the boundaries of science to try to prove the existing paradigm. In other words, there's evidence coming in that something's wrong with the paradigm. But instead of just looking at the evidence and going, oh, interesting, our paradigm's wrong, they do everything in their power to try to prove that the paradigm is right, and they even bend the rules of science to try to make it fit. Does that sound like evolution to some degree, folks? You know? Bend the rule, because that paradigm is true. And so he calls it, they do extraordinary research, not to discover the truth, but to prove their paradigm is right. The third stage... He referred to it as the adoption of a new paradigm. It's, I just called it the new paradigm surfaces. In other words, it starts to come to the top. So you have the original paradigm, then it gets challenged, then this new paradigm starts to bubble to the surface, begins to start to accumulate more evidence. So this new paradigm is formed, it gains new followers, but there's always resistance to it. We're going to see that not so much today, but we'll see that Next week, Dustin, or not next week, two weeks from now when Dustin preaches on the next section. Next week, Dave will be preaching. Dave will be here. I think he's going to do a story on Jonah and some pictures of what he was able to see what Jonah saw when he was over in the Middle East. Some great pictures. So, this new paradigm starts to surface. And then lastly, the fourth stage, he referred to it as the aftermath. I just referred to it as the new paradigm realized meaning when the new paradigm sort of becomes the reality and is the generally accepted paradigm. So essentially a paradigm shifts when the usual way of thinking about something is replaced by a new and a different way of thinking about something. Now Kuhn was a scientist, so his work focused primarily on science and philosophy, but the concepts of paradigm shifts actually apply to everything from science to medicine, philosophy, history, religion. We've even got paradigms in history that tell us how to view history. And sometimes those are radically changed. I just finished reading two books for, for my birthday this year and for Father's Day. I think it was Father's Day or my birthday. I asked for some archaeology books. So one of them was 12 different places that Jesus specifically visited. It was called When God Came Down, or Where God Came Down. And it shows the archaeological evidence for some of the places where we see Jesus, like his birth in Bethlehem, etc. The second one I'm almost finished with right now is 101 archaeological discoveries showing the validity of the Old Old and New Testament. Fascinating. It's just one chapter on each one of these. Um, What's interesting is it continues to talk about the paradigm that most archaeologists use to view history. And that paradigm is really wrong. It's not a biblical paradigm. And so in this book, he has a different paradigm he uses, that the scriptures are true. And so he looks at those historical things through the lens of the scriptures. So today, we're going to actually look at a passage. We get to witness a major theological paradigm shift for Peter. I'm going to actually use these four things, this process, if you will, that Kuhn mentions to form our study today. So the first one is the accepted paradigm. What is the accepted paradigm? In the first century, most Jews believed that Gentiles were unclean. They were unholy because they didn't practice the dietary and the purity laws of the Old Testament. 
For this reason, most of them also thought that it was unlawful to associate with Gentiles for fear of being defiled themselves. That was their paradigm. Gentiles were off limits. You don't touch them, you don't associate with them, you don't hang out with them because it would not please God. It makes you dirty. They rub off on you. And we have to be clear about a couple of things. First off, we see Jesus or see Peter reference that in chapter 10, verse 28 today. When he walks in, he sees all these Gentiles, he realizes it's unlawful for me to be here with you. That's what they believed. Now we have to be really clear about something. I alluded to this last week. The Old Testament did not say that Gentiles were off limits and couldn't be touched and that Jews should stay away from them. In fact, I mentioned last week as well that there's Jew or there's Gentiles in Jesus' lineage. In fact, we know of at least four of them. Four of the women, or I'm sorry, four of the five women mentioned by Matthew in Jesus' genealogy are all Gentile women. We've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. The law, in fact, you can turn here with me, Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15 actually spells out laws or a law related to Gentiles bringing their sacrifices before the Lord. Numbers chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. If an alien, that's a Gentile, sojourns with you, in other words, if he's in your midst, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. A perpetual statute throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. In other words, he says, Gentiles can approach me the same way you can approach me. They weren't off limits. But yet, the Jews, by the time we get to this first century, believed that the Gentiles were not a part of God's redemptive plan. They were off limits. They were dirty. They were untouchable. If you went near them, you somehow became filthy. We see this in the scriptures. Think about John 18.28 when the Jesus was arrested and they took him before the, the Romans. It says that the Jews refused to enter. Why? It's Gentile territory. They can get filthy. They had no problem murdering an innocent man, but somehow, going into the predatorium, that was off limits because it was all Gentiles and it was a dirty place to be. In fact, John chapter 4 verse 9 tells us they had the same problem with Samaritans. They were just as dirty as the Gentiles. So these Jews had this paradigm. We are God's chosen people. We're okay before him. Everybody else, they're dirty. Gentiles, half-Jews, those, those Samaritans. And so they lived their life that way, including Peter. In fact, Peter, even after today, even though he accepts this paradigm shift, kind of has a little bit of a lapse a little bit later. Paul mentions having to call him out because when Peter's hanging out with the Jews and the Gentiles, he's fine with the Gentiles as long as there's no Jews around, but when the Jews show up, he's a little embarrassed by it and thinks he might be called out. So he even struggles a little bit later, and probably not so much because of what's in his head, but because he doesn't want his Jews who believe differently to have a problem with him. 
So this paradigm that was accepted was that Jews were off limits. They were not a part of God's redemptive plan in some respects. They were unsavable because they weren't Jews. So that's the paradigm, the accepted paradigm, that first phase. Now let's get into the text because the next phase here is the paradigm, if you remember, Kuhn said, was challenged. Something happens to that paradigm. So our passage last week is where we pick up, or I'm sorry, we pick up today where our passage last week actually ended. We were introduced to this God-fearing man named Cornelius. He was a Gentile, a Roman centurion. He was living in the, the capital city, Caesarea. One day, while he was praying, the Lord sent him an angel. And this angel sent him some encouraging news, and he sent him some instructions. The encouraging news was that his prayers had reached the Lord. His almsgiving to the Jews had reached the Lord as a remembrance. God saw it as an offering. Much like we saw in Numbers. God was willing to accept the sacrifices of Gentiles, and so he looked at Cornelius, who had been giving to the Jews, who had been praying continually, we're told, who was a God-fearing man. That all went up to the Lord. The Lord heard it. And he responded to it, if you remember. He sent Cornelius an angel. And the angel also, aside from encouraging him with, those, with that good news, sent him some instructions and said, Go get Peter. Send some men. Go get Peter. And we were told, in a couple of places in Acts, that the angel told Cornelius, Peter has a message for you, and it's about how to get saved. So, as the men were on their way, Peter experiences this divine vision. You remember that? The Lord brings down the sheet, and on the sheet are all these animals that were forbidden by the Old Testament law to eat, things like pigs and horses and the wrong kind of insects and all kinds of nasty I don't think avocados were probably on that list. Three times the Spirit lowered that, and three times said, Eat! And three times Peter said, Ah, ain't going to do it. I've never done anything that's been unclean. The answer to that from God was, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. In other words, the Lord had purified the unclean foods. This right here gave Peter permission and the rest of the Jews permission to now eat the things that were considered unclean in the Old Testament law. It's partly why Paul himself says, hey, I can be all things to all people. When I'm, like a Gen- when I'm with Gentiles, I can do what the Gentiles do. I can include going to the market and I can eat food in the marketplace. If he wanted to have a bratwurst, he could have a bratwurst. But there was another meaning to it. We're going to see that today. This is another example where there's a double meaning in the Scripture, something presented in the Scriptures. We know that what the Lord did here was to suspend the dietary food laws. Again, it's pretty clear in the rest of the Scriptures. However, as we learn in a moment, the Lord intended for another application, and it relates to the paradigm described a couple of minutes ago. Peter didn't understand this initially, but we're going to see in a moment. Ultimately, he gets it. There's a new paradigm coming. So Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Look at verse 23. We'll get into the text. Acts chapter 10, verse 23. Second half of it, actually. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, these men who'd come to him. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up! I too am just a man. 
And so what we basically find here is that when Peter arrives, Cornelius is waiting anxiously for him. It would have been about four days probably because of the travel time that was necessary. Two days for the men to get to Peter, and then two days to get Peter back to where they were at. But it wasn't any private meeting we find out here. Cornelius had gathered together not just his immediate family, but all of his servants, as well as his relatives and his close friends. This was a large group of people. Now remember, Cornelius was probably a fairly wealthy man. That's what we expect of the commanders in the Roman army. Probably had a fairly large house. He had servants of his own. He was well-liked, well-respected, probably had a lot of friends. And so he gathered all these folks in. Now based on his behavior when he saw Peter, he was obviously in awe of Peter. Now that the text here, in most Bibles, say that he bowed down and worshipped him. The NIV, I think, is the only one that says that he simply fell at his feet in reverence. And the reason is, it's, it's kind of unclear. The term bow down is, literally means to bow down, and sometimes it's used to refer to worship. So we're not really sure here if Cornelius thought Peter might have been some type of angelic or divine person that came in, some special... I mean, think about what he had heard about Peter. The healings, and as far as we know, Peter hadn't raised anybody from the... Actually, Peter raised somebody from the dead. Maybe he heard about that, right? So he has this picture of Peter, and he bows down either in reverence to him and respect, which was fairly common when you would meet somebody in, in those days that you respected, you would bow down to them. And so he may have been paying him respect. He may have been worshiping him, as the text says. I favor probably the first. I think it was an act of reverence that he paid to him. Even the way Peter responds here, I'm just a man, could be seen as, I'm just a man, not divine, or, no, I'm just some dude like you. You don't have to bow down to me. I don't have any authority of any kind. So again, we're not real sure what's going on here. Uh, I prefer more, more likely that he had simply bowed down in reverence to him, but I don't know how much it, it's just a personal choice. You have to look at the text one way or another, right? And so, um, I don't know why he would have thought of Peter as being divine, some godlike being. In fact, he'd already seen an angel. He kind of knew what that looked like. But anyway, at a minimum, he had a tremendous amount of respect. He was in awe of Peter. And so Peter tells him to stand up. But then look at what happens in verse 29 and following. As Peter talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. And so the first thing Peter does here is he shares this paradigm. You realize, in fact, I imagine Peter was probably a little bit surprised. I don't know that he knew what to expect. He was just told Cornelius is waiting for you. But imagine he opens this door and he sees this large crowd of Gentiles, and considering Peter had lived most of his life, likely, avoiding Gentiles, now he walks in and it's all Gentiles. Think for a moment yourselves. Think of one particular type or group of people that you probably wouldn't find yourselves having a lot in common with. I'm going to go ahead and put it out on the line there. There are some people I don't like. Some people that I'm just uncomfortable around because of their behavior, the way that they talk, or the things that they do. You know, for me, it's not usually based on color of skin or that type of stuff. It's usually how they talk and how they behave. You know, you walk in and hang out with somebody, and every other word out of their mouth is the f bomb or anything like that. It all just makes you squeamish a little bit, you know. And so, just imagine in your head, think of who that is for you. 
Now imagine yourself walking into a room to visit somebody and the room is filled with people like that. You excited to be there? You can admit it. We're all sinners. Saved by grace, right? There might be some of you that aren't that way, right? Uh, Yeah. We all have that. Certain people that make us uncomfortable, a little awkward, whatever it is. So Peter walks into that. But he's bold and he says, you people realize I should not be here? The law says this is a bad thing. But he continues because he doesn't just say what the paradigm is, he actually kind of repudiates the paradigm now. He realizes there's a new paradigm. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objections when I was sent for. So I ask, what reason have you sent for me? So Peter actually announces a repudiation of this paradigm. He called the existing paradigm out and says, you know, it's unlawful. But he then says, but God showed me something. I think it's at this point that Peter, that it finally clicks He'd already accepted the Gentiles into his house who came to get him. So we know that, okay, maybe there's a connection between the vision I had. You remember the text told us last week that he was perplexed by it. And the the tenses used there meant that it wasn't just, huh, and then he moved on. He continued to think about it, wondering what it is that God was trying to teach him. There's something more to this story. He probably understood the literal sense of, okay, God said it's okay to eat that kind of meat, but why do that in a vision? And these guys show up, and he's probably thinking, okay, all of a sudden Gentiles show up here. They claim that God sent an angel and told them, I'm supposed to go with them. Maybe there's a connection here. Walks into this room all of a sudden and goes, oh. So all of a sudden he begins, things begin to click in his mind. He says, I came because God showed me that what he had cleansed or I love the way he says it here. He says, God showed me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objections and why I was sent. And so it starts to click. Oh, that vision. Because God said, I should not consider any man unclean. Gentile, half Jew, Bears fans, Cleveland Browns. I grew up in Green Bay, you all know that. Now, while Peter had begun to grasp what God was doing, I think his understanding here was still somewhat incomplete. He didn't quite understand the full paradigm shift that was about to happen. Look at verses 29 and following. That's why I came, even without raising any objections, when when I was sent for. In other words, okay, I get it. The new paradigm is Gentiles are not unclean. But notice what he says next. So I asked, for what reason have you sent for me? He still didn't know why he was there. 
Cornelius said, Four days ago, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before, I think he meant before you, or before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So, Peter says, why am I here? He said, oh, because God has something for you to tell us. Now, we find elsewhere in the book of Acts that the angel had told Cornelius, Peter's going to tell you how to get saved. That's the one thing he was lacking. He was a devout man, loved the Lord, gave alms to the Jewish people. It wasn't enough to save him. The Lord responded to that and said, okay, I'll tell you what you need to be saved. And so he says, go get Peter. Peter will tell you how to be saved. And so now Cornelius reveals that to Peter. So contrary to the paradigm that he had grown up with, he clearly understood that it was now okay to associate with Gentiles, but that was only part of the paradigm shift. It really wasn't just about it's okay to associate with Gentiles. He still didn't grasp quite the bigger picture and why God sent him to Cornelius, which is that the paradigm shift that was taking place was that Gentiles are part of God's redemptive plan. That's what Peter didn't grasp until this moment. It was all about the gospel. Remember, that paradigm wasn't just that we can't hang out with Gentiles because they're dirty. It was... They're unsavable. They're not part of God's plan. That's us. And those half-breed Samaritans, they're not part of God's plan either. But what Peter was learning here was that, no, Gentiles are part of God's plan too. So what happens? The third phase was this new paradigm sort of bubbles up to the surface. So look at what happens. When Peter hears hears Cornelius' answer, it's like this light bulb kind of goes off in his head. Look at verses 34 and 35. Opening his his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's the paradigm shift. Again, God is impartial. What God cares about is that those who fear Him and do what is right are welcome to Him. Whoever they are, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, black, white, slave, master, free, not free. That was a new paradigm. Now keep in mind, a paradigm is simply the lens through which we see things. God didn't change the means of salvation. It wasn't all of a sudden that God went, you know, I should probably include those Gentiles. There are some within Christian circles that believe in something called replacement theology. It's false. It's a false teaching. It's this idea that somehow God has turned his back on Israel because Israel turned his or their back on him, and so God sort of replaces them with the Gentiles. God went to the Israelites, they rejected him, so now he goes to the Gentiles. Forget about the Israelites. All the promises made to Abraham, they all go to the church now. 
It's called replacement theology. It's almost like God changed his mind. Well, no, nothing has changed. Because remember, the paradigm is simply a way we look at something. It's not reality. The paradigm of evolution is not reality. Evolution is the lens, the the way that things are viewed. That can change. I'm a creationist. My paradigm changed when I became a believer and I began to look at the text. It doesn't mean that changed. Just the paradigm did. And so what we have here, this paradigm shift, has to do with how they looked at the Gentiles. Not how God works with the Gentiles. God didn't all of a sudden change his mind and now say, oh, we can now save Gentiles. Now, there's a timing aspect to this, meaning God went to Israel first, but the Gentiles were always a part of it. In the book of Acts, we had them start with Jerusalem. Jesus said, first Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the ends of the earth. So the time, there's a timing element to it. Jesus, when he was here, and the, and the Gentile woman had approached Jesus, and she said, heal my daughter. And Jesus said, oh, I can't give to the dogs what's, you know. And then she said, but even the dogs get to eat what's on the floor. And Jesus did what? Healed her daughter. Why? Because he was first sent to the house of Israel. He was their Messiah. God was going to work through Israel to establish his redemptive plan. Again, that doesn't mean the Gentiles were excluded. There's a timing issue involved as God works out his plan, his means of salvation. So, Peter's understanding of God's plan begins to change here, and it's starting to click now. It isn't just about association with Gentiles. It's about inclusion. That's why he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That begins to now click for Peter. It's a new paradigm. A new understanding of how God is supposed to, or how God works. Now, just like Thomas Kuhn claimed what happened, he said that you kind of get to this third phase and you're going to see people push back, kind of reject it, resist it. And we won't see that so much in our text here today, but we're going to see that in a little bit where some Jews object. When the Jews in Jerusalem get wind of what happens here, they want to call Peter out. They're going to resist that. They're going to push back against the new paradigm. We'll get to that, like I said, in two weeks. So we'll see that. It happens just like Kuhn said it would happen here. Now, as we learned in our passage from last week, Cornelius' devotions and prayers and his alms, they were honored by God, but unlikely or ultimately unable to save him. So look at what happens here in verses 36 through 33. He still needed Christ, and that's why Peter's there, starting at verse 36. Peter says, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism of John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and hearing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He um, he also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. 
God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Do you think Peter understood the Gentiles at this point were included in everyone? He did. And so Peter preaches the gospel to not just Cornelius but his whole entire family, his relatives, his close friends, all of whom apparently are Gentiles. He begins by reminding them of the events surrounding Jesus' earthly life. He recounts Jesus' death and resurrection. He declares that God has appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead and that only through belief in him can one receive forgiveness of sins. That was the gospel message that he preached to Cornelius. So what Peter presented here is a new paradigm a new way of looking at the Gentiles. In the old paradigm, they were outsiders, separate from God's plan, with little hope of converting, or little hope of knowing God, unless they converted to Judaism, strictly following the Old Testament law. But in this new paradigm, Gentiles were just as accepted by God as the Jews, because it's all by faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Jump down to verse 11. Paul describes this beautifully to the Gentiles in Ephesus. Starting at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, we had a little bit of name calling there, remember, well those are the uncircumcised people, we can't hang out with them. He says, remember, you were once called uncircumcised by the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what he's getting at there is not that Gentiles couldn't know God, because, again, in the Old Testament they could, they just had to convert to Judaism. But he's saying, because you were Gentiles, you were sort of... In that state, you were separate. You didn't know the promises given to, Gen- to, to Israel. You weren't a part of the commonwealth of Israel. They literally had to convert, become Jews, in order to become part of, part of that. But they could nonetheless become part of Israel. We saw in the Old Testament, again, numbers that they could bring sacrifices before the Lord, the same way that Israel did. So, same rules applied. You want to be part of God's family, so to speak? Got to be part of Israel? If you're a Gentile, become part of Israel. Kind of the, the picture. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In other words, he preached to the Jews and to the Gentiles both. For through him we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling house of God in the Spirit. Paul spells out that Gentiles are a part of God's redemptive plan. And so Peter now preaches that to Cornelius and his family. New paradigm. It's shifted. The last stage that Kuhn mentioned was when that new paradigm is, I'm going to say, becomes realized. It becomes the dominant paradigm. One thing that Kuhn proposed in his description of this paradigm shift, is that this new paradigm becomes the dominant view once the evidence supports it. In other words, evidence is critical to the acceptance of the new paradigm. Happened with ulcers. Once the doctor started looking at the research and seeing, oh, he infected himself, doing the math in their head, it's like, oh, okay. Then the shift began to happen. And that new paradigm that was presented that had bubbled to the surface starts to become the dominant paradigm. We see something actually similar here. And so I ask, what's the proof that Gentiles are just as worthy of God's acceptance and salvation as the Jews were when it's based on faith in Jesus Christ? What's the evidence of that? Well, the Lord didn't leave Peter without the the evidence that he needed. In fact, he would use what's about to happen when he goes back to Jerusalem and those Jews up there say, Peter, what are you doing? You're hanging out with those dirty people. He uses this as the evidence of this new paradigm. Look at verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking, he didn't get an opportunity to finish his gospel presentation. While he's still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the Gentiles. What happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. In other words, all the fellow Jews, I think there were six of them that came with Peter if I did my math right. They're amazed. They see the Holy Spirit pour down upon these dirty Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Essentially what we have here is a mini Pentecost. But this time, instead of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the apostles, it's poured out on a group of Gentiles. While he's still speaking, this happens. The other Jews are amazed. Why? They didn't expect it. God doesn't include the Gentiles. Well, he must. In fact, the Old Testament promised a time when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on those people who were not his people. It's exactly what happens here. In fact, the book of, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says that's the primary purpose of the gift of tongues. It's a sign to the Jews when God pours out his Spirit... On those that he's pouring it out, they're his people. If you're a Jew and you see that, and the Spirit's not poured out on you, there's a problem. So when you as a Jew see the Spirit poured out on somebody, and you see God speaking through them in tongues, that's your evidence 
that they're God's people and you're on the outside. As a Jew, that ought to convict you. So Luke highlights this amazement, but what we see here is that this old paradigm is shattered right before their eyes. In fact, Peter says, surely, in other words, I'm convinced nobody should refuse to allow these people to now be baptized. What did baptism represent? Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's when you were made part of the body of Christ, at least in a public sense. When the Jews at Pentecost said, Peter, what should we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. Repent, walk away from the old lifestyle, turn your back on sin, and become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Become part of the body of Christ. Become part of the church. And so what Peter says here is, these Gentile believers are part of the body of Christ. And who are we to stand in the way? In fact, he uses that as evidence when he, last thing he says to the Jews in Jerusalem, and again, I think Dustin will cover this. His last bit of evidence to them was, how could I stand in the way? (laughs) If God did this, how could I not? And so, the evidence, the proof of this new paradigm, that God had accepted the Gentiles, forgave their sins, made them part of the body of Christ, proving that they were part of his redemptive plan was the Holy Spirit. God pouring out on these individuals. So what's our conclusion to all this? There is one big takeaway. It's all I've got for you today. One big takeaway. And it comes right from Peter's mouth. God's not impartial, or God is not partial when it comes to salvation. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're black or white, rich or poor, religious or not religious, if I can say it that way, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. What God cares about is found by Peter in verse 34. The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now that phrase, does what is right, we understand theologically means accepting Christ. It's not by works. It's by faith. That's what's right. It's defined that way in the scriptures. And so what we learn from this passage here today is that God's plan from the very beginning was always to save mankind through the gospel. The promise to Abraham was that all the nations would be blessed. And even though God chose to work through Israel, make Israel, if I, if I can say it this way, the means to get us to the gospel. In other words, he would use a people group, the Israelites, to help establish and show his plan for mankind, the bringing of a Savior, a Messiah, etc. But even with that, always within there, he didn't exclude the Gentiles. They were always part of his plans, and Israel was simply a means to get us to where we find ourselves today. The Jews misunderstood that. It became exclusive. It's all about us. We were given the law. They excluded the Gentiles. They didn't reach out to the Gentiles. They pushed them away. And so we have this paradigm develop. On who's in and who's out. 
who's worthy of salvation, who's not. Do you think maybe we ever struggle with that to some degree? Come on. Be honest. It's a whole lot more fun to share the gospel with somebody we like than the one we can't stand. The one who's dirty and nasty and makes us feel uncomfortable. Am I wrong? Am I stepping on these toes? God's plan has always been to save the most worthless because he's impartial. What he cares about is the one who fears him, does what is right, and he says, you're welcome. And so we see that take place today. Paul in his I call it his doctoral thesis, the book of Romans. It's all about the gospel. He spells it out in technical terms, exactly how God worked through the gospel. But he says this in chapter 10, verse 11 and following. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him is not disappointed. Notice it says, whoever believes in him is not disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for, here's another word, all who call on him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we see take place here. It's nothing new from God's perspective. That was always his plan. The Israelites got it all screwed up. And even Peter through his time with Christ, didn't quite get it until God decided, okay, I'm going to challenge Peter. I'm going to challenge his paradigm. Does it through the food laws first with the vision that he had. Then challenges him practically by sending him into the midst of the people he couldn't stand to be around. And all of a sudden, the lights go on in Peter's head. And what we're going to see in a little bit is that Peter then becomes the catalyst to change it for the church as a whole back in Jerusalem. And so he'll take this message back because they're challenged with it as well. But then ultimately, the rest of the book of Acts does what? Focuses on the Gentiles. This is a transitionary piece of scriptures where it sort of hands off from Peter to Paul and we see then the church explode within the Gentiles. Pretty cool.